You're listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Let's get into the discussion. Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute, and we've been out for a while just trying to get some family stuff done and some life stuff done, but we're back, and I'm joined by Eric Powers and, and Michael Wellen, my brothers in Christ. It's always a pleasure to be on with you guys, fellowshipping and talking about the Word, talking about the Lord, trying to glorify Him through our podcast. Uh, so today we're going to take a little different route and we're just going to basically walk through the Bible because of all the, there's plenty of podcasts out there trying to chase after topics and trying to chase after, you know, the, the issue of the day. And I just felt like we should go another route and just not be like everybody else. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not enough, not enough podcasts out there that are just walking through the scriptures and dealing with the text exegetically so i thought you know it would be best for us to be one of those podcasts where people can listen to it and they can you know have their bibles open and they can walk through the scriptures with us and with the lord and be edified um, by you know how we approach the podcast so we're going to start off in Genesis, of course, and we'll just work our way to Revelation, Lord willing, however long that takes. And, you know, of course, if there's something pressing that you guys want to talk about on a podcast, you know, between that in that time, we don't have to just like strictly stay to it. But if you want to address a certain subject or a certain topic, then we can put this to the side for a second and, and, and do that as well. But I just really wanted to focus on the text. Just let the text speak. So I just I just feel like that's important these days. A lot of people just don't know what the scriptures say anymore. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis, and uh, we're going to start with. Now I know Eric mentions this a lot, so I'm going to give you the floor on this this first point. Um, about the LGH or the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. If you could just take a few minutes and briefly explain our our approach, because we all take the same approach. Um, If you could just take a few minutes and briefly explain that LGH hermeneutic for our listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, This is a good place to start going through this. You know, what we're planning to do, look at the text and and talk about our approach to the scripture and uh, talk about the literal grammatic historical hermeneutic. And so when we talk about that, you know, we're talking about a hermeneutic that is actually scripture self-attested hermeneutic. It's not something that we get from somewhere else and then impose that upon the Bible. The Bible actually teaches us how we're supposed to interpret and read the scriptures and, uh, and how we're supposed to you know, practice, what we're supposed to practice is called exegesis, drawing out the author's intended meaning. And then exposition, what we're doing now is explaining the author's intended meaning. And so I believe that that can only be accomplished through Scripture's self-attested hermeneutical principle, the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And so that's what you're, you're, you're talking about, right? The mm-hmm. literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. And some, and I'd like to add to that uh, geographical too, because this takes place in a certain geography. So you have flora and fauna, plants and animals that are unique to that place. Where the scriptures talk about the flora and fauna, and um, you know, it didn't take place in the Americas. It took place in uh, the ancient Near East, and so all those things we need to look at if we're to understand what the original writer was getting at his his meaning the original author as well as the uh, original recipients or audiences to the scripture in, in that context so the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic that's what we practice here we've been practicing for a long time because this we get from the scriptures 
So, uh, I mean, we can break that. Do you want to break that down? Yeah, if uh, you if you don't mind. Part? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and this is really important for us to start here because this is Bibli- this is bibliology, this is studying you know scripture and hermeneutics. And the two main verses that I go to when we're bringing up this this topic is Second Timothy three sixteen and Second um, Peter chapter one. Let me turn to Second Peter chapter one first. Second Peter chapter one. I'm sorry, verse nineteen. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And so we're talking about the literal part of the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Uh, We're talking about the fact that uh, we're talking about interpretation and that uh, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So there's a monolithic interpretation when you're referring to any portion of scripture. There's one correct interpretation, and that's the author's intended meaning. Peter went on to write, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then Second Timothy Chapter 3, 16, all scripture is theopneustos, God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so that's talking about the origin of the scripture, that the scriptures are God, God-breathed. God It's talking about where it comes from. It comes from God. So he chose the human authors to write down what he wanted in the scriptures. And so he is the divine author, and he chose the human authors to write down, to write down what... Um, he wanted them to write down the scriptures. And so if we're starting Genesis, we're, we're talking about how God used Moses to be the human author of the book of Genesis. And this and Genesis is certainly uh, under the category of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training righteousness. And so we're to interpret the scriptures literally. Then there's metaphors in the scriptures, there's literary genres, different literary genres. There's epistle, there's narrative, gospel narrative, there's historical narrative. Genesis is a historical narrative. It's not poetry. It's not Hebrew poetry. It's, it's, uh, it's a narrative. And we need to understand what we need to literally interpret um, the context using the, uh, the literary genre, understand what the literary genre is first, too. And so that's part of literal. And then... Um, if the scripture is giving us a, uh, a metaphor or if there's figurative language, the author is going to provide the interpretation for us from the text. And there's many examples for that. It would take a long time to go through, all, through them all. But just uh, to talk about the other two uh, features of the little grammatical historical, you have grammatical, which is the, the language that uh, the, the original writers wrote the different books of the 66 books of the Bible. So the Old Testament, you have Hebrew, and Hebrew has um, has, has uh, uh, certain characteristics to it, uh, grammatical characteristics. And then you have uh, some uh, Aramaic, like the book of Daniel uh, has a, a portion of Aramaic. And then the New Testament was written in Greek. And so those are the languages that that the Bible was composed in. You know, God chose the human authors to write down what God wanted in the scriptures. And those are the languages that were, were used to write in the scriptures. So we have to read the original languages. We've got to look at form and function of the words. We've got to look at the grammar. We've got to look at the subject, the object, the tenses of the verbs, uh, the way that they're used. Uh, the, you know, in, in the New Testament, um, for the verbs, you have what is called mood, you know, the indicative mood subjunctive mood, optative mood. And so all that contributes to the 
the meaning of what the authors communicate. So we have to share the same things that the author did when they were writing this in the sense of using the grammar and, the, and following the rules of grammar as we're interpreting the scriptures called exegesis. And then historical, this happened in history at a, at a specific period in history. And so we can't look at it through the lens of the day and age in which we live and then use that. A lot of people do it that way and they end up practicing eisegesis. And one of the biggest examples of that is when you get to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modest and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And so they would say, well, that was kind of the time frame culturally in the Roman Empire that Paul's getting at. But there's a problem with that, because if you continue to read that passage, you see that this is actually going back to Genesis. It's going back to a creation principle. And so that transcends all cultural context. Because listen to this, verse 13, the immediate next verse. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And so the historical uh, feature of our, our, our hermeneutic that we get from the Scripture is that, you know, we got to look at each one of these books that we're looking through as we go through the Bible and, and what... What was the date of the book? You know, what was the history of the people involved with uh, what was going on? And um, what was the occasion? What was the, you know, what was the historical context? And so all that's really important to understand the author's intent and meaning. And I don't believe that there's any way to arrive um, in understanding the author's intent and meaning unless you interpret the Bible the way the Bible is telling us how to interpret it. So that's a very brief introduction to uh, you know, the, this, the, the uh, little grammatical historical hermeneutic. You got anything, Mike? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, I always have to ask. <laughs> you know, some people might ask, um, you know, the, the New Testament talks about someone who's born again is illuminated, understand the scripture. And so... What you're saying is more scientific, Eric, and talking about the little grammatical historical. But what I'm saying is that this is Scripture's self-attested hermeneutical principle. So we were doing this um, when, we were, when God was illuminating us to understand the Bible without any education and without stating it like this. We were interpreting the Bible literally, we were, you know, grammatically, you know, reading it in English, uh, when we go back to when we first became believers— and then later we, we discovered these features from Greek and Hebrew, but also historically we knew the history. And so God was illuminating us to the truth. And um, that is in perfect unity and harmony with the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Because again, I'm saying this is, this is what the Bible says, how we're supposed to interpret the Bible. You know, Paul brings up um, grammatical nuances in the, uh, in Galatians to, Four. And Jesus is this is the seed of Abraham yeah. and he br brings up um, the number grammatically, you know, singular versus plural. And so he's interpreting Genesis. He's interpreting Genesis and looking at the grammar it was written in. And then Jesus talks about jots and tittles. Um, mm -hmm. Those are grammatical markers from the Hebrew language. And so we even see the authors in the New Testament, practicing the little grammatical historical hermeneutic. And, and then uh, his, um, historical hermeneutic, one of the greatest sermons ever preached, Stephen's sermon in Acts, he goes through an Old Testament survey as he's preaching against the Pharisees, and then they, and then they murdered him. And so he's, he's expounding upon the text. And he's using a little grammatical historical hermeneutics. Doesn't, again, he, uh, doesn't Moses does something similar in Deuteronomy, right? Yes, yeah, second second law. So you're, you're interpreting, yeah. uh, going over these features of the of the law again uh, with the next generation as they're going to go into the land. And so he's expounding upon those events that happen in history to the next generation and reminding them and warning them 
you know, his last messages uh, to obey um, before Joshua takes over and they go into the promised land. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, they're all doing it. They're all looking at the facts of history. And so we need to practice this when we look at Genesis. Where this, is, this is factual, uh, historical narrative. And uh, you have to look at it, the little grammatical historical approach. I will say one thing, actually, Chris. Is some of the people that argue against that um, kind of mockingly say, so you're going to take everything literally. Like when he says, right. pluck out your eye. Or cut off your hand, and he's, but we, we don't literally interpret when we're talking about context what Eric's saying because just like Paul in Galatians 4, he says, I'm speaking allegorically, he tells us that's what Eric was saying when he's giving that example. And so, we don't get to uh impute allegory into the text, it's not there, and so uh, they're mocking in that. And we don't, we don't take it literally that you have to go, but he's saying it's better to have gouged your eye out, rip your eye out, than to go and be sent to the hell and to not sin. And so it's the seriousness he's giving you that. So there's a context when we're talking about that. And uh, and so I think that's important. I, I think a lot of times there's arguments against the straw man and uh, painting a picture that we don't hold or represent. Yeah, yeah that's a good point, because Jesus used metaphors. So when he said that um, you have to... Um, his flesh and drink his blood. He wasn't yeah. advocating cannibalism. You know, right, it's right, right. It's a metaphor for salvation. Yeah. And so what my, Mike, the example Mike's bringing up is a metaphor for not mutilation of your body, but mortification of sin to get out of your life. And that's all provided by the context. So we're interpreting it literally, but if you just take that one passage and isolate it away from the context, then you're having to have people like Origin that are literally, you know, um, mutilating their mutilating body, body yeah. the, the, uh, the patristic, uh, you know, church, um, historical figure origin who, who mutilated his body. And so, you know, Jesus used metaphors and, uh, it's important again to understand and to pay attention and to discern that we're using the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic because that, that you're talking about grammar, you're talking about literary, um, devices that are being used by, uh, you know, the authors, et cetera. Yeah. So, it's important just to really uh, understand that this hermeneutic, again, is something that the Scripture tells us how we're supposed to interpret the Scripture. This is not something outside the yeah. Scripture. Completely compatible and unified with um, being illuminated by God the Spirit in the process of illumination. He's talking about in, a, in, a, in Ephesians, illumination, because, because he is the agent of... Um, Theopanustas, by bring, giving, bringing us the scriptures to the human authors that he chose um, to write down what he wanted in the scriptures. So if that's the case, and it is, and then the little grammatical historical hermeneutic is actually scripture's self-attested principles of interpretation, then this is his way of interpreting the text. Interpreting the text. So yep. completely compatible with uh, the doctrine of illumination and inseparably constrained to the doctrine of the doctrine of illumination. Yeah, I was actually going to, well, Mike pretty much answered the next question I was going to ask because you hear that a lot uh, from the opponents of the LGH hermeneutic about, well, do you guys take everything literally? You know, like he said, do you, are you supposed to literally pluck out your eye and cut your hand off and eat, eat the flesh and drink the blood? Well, no, that's not what, and, and like, Mike said, that's a straw man to, to try to get away from the fact of admitting that this is actually, as you said, the self-attested method within Scripture yeah. by, by which we are to. And, 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 of, and of course, we're not saying that is without the Holy Spirit. Right. And we're not saying that. But what Eric is saying is that when you look at Scripture, this, this LGH hermeneutic is what is found there. Yeah. So the exegesis, the, the, the method of interpretation that we get comes from the scriptures. It's not something that we made up out of the blue. Yeah. And, it's, right. and it's not a philosophy that we get from our education outside of, of the scriptures either. Mm -hmm. This doesn't come from Greek philosophy or, you know, we're just interested in drawing out the author's intended meaning and then explaining the author's intended meaning. It also doesn't come from church history or the reformers or anything else in that sense. I mean, church history going back all the way when the church began. Yeah, they didn't. The, the reformers didn't invent it. They just yeah. they, they employed it 
um, and not um, perfectly across the board with all of them because a lot of them made mistakes and they still held on to, you know, uh, some of, you know, allegory. Yeah. And, um, allegory overdrive. The only place you actually see that word show up is what you're saying, Mike, in uh, Galatians. Yeah. And, and, um, and it's not really the the allegory of Plato. Plato, no. You know, it's um, so, but he act, but he says, you know, this this is to be interpreted this way. He he provides the interpretation for us right. in that passage. But you don't just take take that and then use that across the board in every single passage that is up for discussion as right. a literary overdrive, because right. uh, you know he he's just dealing with it that there in that particular. Um, location in Galatians. Matt, what's up, man? What's up, guys? <laughs> Join, joining <laughs> us. Uh, no worries. Joining us is another member of the Biblical Christ Research Institute, Matt Lawrence. Glad you're here. Deron Gladden is, is out, out of town. He's on his way back, so we wish him safe travels on the way back. So, so based on what we just talked about, uh, and thank you for giving me Given uh, our listeners that brief definition, I know we could go way into yeah, <laughs> into yeah. that. There's a lot to it, but um, on a side note, which I think goes along with the hermeneutic, should should when we study the scriptures, should we treat the scriptures as one connected unit or as sixty six books? Because I know I know when we open our English Bibles. And you look at the table of contents, there's 66 books there. Yeah. Well, that's a great question, man. I think um, I think you, you can't you can't avoid to see the the unity and the and the harmony between all of uh, these 66 books in our canon of scripture. And there's certain themes that extend throughout all of them that uh, the word I'm looking for is like the red thread that extends throughout all of these books. And it starts back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium. Jesus is the seed of the woman. And then uh, it says there, because he's, uh, God is actually pronouncing judgment upon the spiritual serpent there. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He will crush you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. So Jesus is the seed of the woman there. And he is the seed of Abraham that we see in the middle of Genesis. And then he's the seed of David in the Davidic covenant. And so that theme is extending throughout the Old Testament. And then he talks about seeds and putting his seed as far as regeneration in us in the new covenant. That's attached to it as well. And so that theme extends all the way from Genesis to the end in Revelation. There's, there's the, the overall context of the scripture, and you're looking at that, uh, I guess I would say, um, looking at that uh, deductively and then moving in on the particular, but then inductively also looking at each individual book as a historical context, and it has, uh, you know, uh, the, the grammar or the um, literary genre, the date, the occasion, all those things are important, and you look at that. And then you and then you work your, your way out inductively from from that particular in a context. And so, you know, we study individual books, but we also have to show this principle of um, how the scriptures are, uh, you know, or each each one of these books is inseparably constrained to one another and has a unified, um, you know, so one cohesive unit. Yeah, one, yeah, exactly. Running yeah. through the whole thing. Yeah. Analogy of uh, faith, I think, is what it's called. Yeah, scripture interprets scripture. And so you'll, you'll, see, you'll hear people uh, preaching and teaching cross-references. You know, when I'm going through 1 John, I really kind of want to stay in 1 John. But there's certain things that John brings up in 1 John that he's going back. He's even talking about events in Genesis. As a church, we're working through First John, but he's talking about Cain and Abel there. Yeah. He's talking about the fact that the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so that starts in Genesis 3.15. And he's bringing up that. And so that's showing how it's, how it's all connected. And they go together as, you know, 
one big one corpus, you know, the whole the, the story of the Bible. But if any of you guys want to add to that, I think that, you know, looking at the covenants, um, you know, looking at the overarching story, meta narrative of the Bible. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, there's continuity and discontinuity from Old Testament, New Testament. But again, uh, they don't reinterpret themselves. It's important. And I think people also understand when you're reading your Bible, it's it's not in um, a historical. It's not in, in a row. It's not what happened. And so I think a lot of people don't understand that. And they go and read it in order. Chronologically, that's the word. Like It's not in chronological order. And so you have to understand the context when you're studying it. And you can't separate them. As, as well as there really wasn't book and chapter, even in the New Testament, uh, it got it put in there, obviously, for us to understand. It's helpful, but I think that, and I think there's also not just that, people break up even chapters and even books of the Bible, and they kind of isolate it. So you have to read through the context uh, and the purpose statement. Like look in John, in John 20, uh, he says, this is why I write in the Gospel of John, this is why I've written to you. It's all the way at the end. And so you, you can't separate that. So I think it's extremely important to look at it as, as one unit. It's uh, all scriptures God breathed, what Eric was talking about in Second Timothy. So, Matt, you got anything? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with what Eric and Mike said. But, um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's going back to your question where you asked, should it be seen as 66 books or should it be seen as one unit? I don't think that's really an either or. Uh, there, there certainly is 66 books, but it's it's one cohesive unit because of the fact that it was written by one author, uh -huh. and so there's there's unity throughout that with the same author, that being God, the Holy Spirit, uh, using the human author uh, uh -huh. to write down 66 books, and God intended it for intended for it to be 66 books, Old and New Testament. You see that in Hebrews chapter one, like verse one and two particularly, but. Um, but again, there's there's cohesiveness and you have to like Mike was saying, you have to read it in context and because uh, because that, that's the only way to properly interpret it. So I, I don't really think it's an either or. I think it's both. It's it's one cohesive unit made up of 66 individual books. Yeah, I feel yeah. bad. I, I, I don't have a hat. You guys all have hats on. <laughs> I'm having a bad hair day. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> Every, every day is a bad hair day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get into Genesis itself. And, uh, following our little broad outline we have, so we talk about the title. I know there's the Hebrew title, and then there's the title that we see in our uh, English Bibles. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the Hebrew title is, is basically just... The first word in in the text, which is better sheet, which is in the beginning. In so the that's beginning. The, the Hebrew title, but um, the actual Genesis title it actually comes from the word Toledot, which is has to do with the generations, which then got translated into the uh, Septuagint or the LXX if you're using abbreviations which is Geneseos, which then Jerome took it and translated it into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. So the title that we see in in our English Bibles is actually the Latin title from from the from the Vulgate. Um, does anybody have anything to add to that or Yeah, I mean the, the the literal the word Genesis is uh is a Greek is a Greek word meaning origin. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, I agree with all what you said there. That's kind of how the, the title, you know, that is distinct from the Hebrew title. You'll see that in other books, too, moving forward. Yeah, I noticed that um, a lot of the Hebrew titles are just like the first words of whatever book it is that yeah was being written. <clears throat> I haven't done, you know research on the remaining type like how we got leviticus or anything like that may it might be the same way but i'm not uh versed to speak on that just yet so <laughs> well yeah i mean a lot of a lot of the old testament names for the books you're right they come from this the septuagint translating um hebrew into greek and then also like jerome would later translate from greek into latin and so you get a lot of those titles from 
um, going back to the translators that worked that Ptolemy used to put together the Septuagint. And Genesis would certainly be one of those examples. All right. So so we've established the title. So now the author, do we all do we all agree that Moses is the author of Genesis? Well, basically the Pentateuch as a whole. Yeah. With with maybe the exception of the end of Deuteronomy, maybe. Because he yeah. died. <laughs> so Yeah. He, he couldn't exactly have written that. Unless yeah. just God like gave him future like <laughs> And had him write write the fact that he died before he actually died. Right. But, I'm sure we're gonna talk about that when we get there because there's a yeah, lot of yeah. <laughs> people have different opinion. Like conservative uh, people um, have different views of that. So. Right. So I I didn't put. Do Do you want to talk about the the, the documentary hypothesis? I mean, a lot of people now are refuting it or saying it's not useful or it's not really valid yeah so do, do do we do we want to spend time on that or well you maybe just give us an overview of what it is and and, and why you, know, you think the way you think about it and yeah well basically it's just a, a higher criticism's way of trying to split up uh the pentateuch because well primarily genesis because um, they see different words being used at different times. Like you see Elohim at one point, but then you see Yahweh at another point. And then the way certain things are written, they'll say, you know, this is a priestly document. So there's with four letters, J, E, P, and D. And so J is the, the Yahwistic or the Ye Jehovistic source. So in a nutshell, because I, I don't really want to waste too much time on it, but in a nutshell, they believe there's four sources which were compiled together to produce the Pentateuch, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and each one is used for a different reason. This is coming from uh, Wellhausen, I believe his name is. Uh, there was there was a guy before him. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there was a guy before him that actually proposed it. But then Wellhausen basically took it and ran with it and produced what we now have as the documentary hypothesis. And this um, is all within like not that long ago, a couple hundred no, years. Yeah, right, right. So, was, so that 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 shows you something there. <laughs> right, right. It's 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 a very liberal attempt to basically cut up the Bible. Yeah. Which goes back to what we just talked about, about treating the Bible as one unit. They, they're yeah, not... Yeah, they're not practicing the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Right. And they're, and they're, attack, they're attacking the, the true authorship of, mm -hmm. of, the, of each one of those books, of the first five books. Yeah, the, the New Testament tells you very clearly what the true authorship is. Christ affirms it. Uh, Paul affirms it. Romans and Corinthians... Uh, when they're quoting from the Pentateuch, they say Moses said these things. So, yeah. so John, it's, it's John Moses. does it too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like you can listen to Wellhausen, or you can listen to what what Christ. Right. Said this, is, this is what happens when you oh. get away from get away from the Holy Spirit, and you suddenly believe that you have become an expert <laughs> in what yeah. the text says. Um, it'll cause you to mangle it. And that's all they're doing is really just mangling the text. I mean, I've read the documentary hypothesis like several times over, but every time I read it, it makes less sense. Um, you know. Yeah, this, uh, th this, this is where I was first introduced to it when I took um, a Bible ah. <laughs> in, in, um, in uh, when I was going to Montgomery College. Uh, here in Maryland, and this was the book, and it's in here. So stay away from the new Oxford Annotated Bible. <laughs> Literally, in the dictum notes where they go over what you're saying, and and this is a uh, this is a terrible attempt to to. I mean, it's eisegesis. Every single one, almost every single one of these dictum notes in this 
is eisegesis that attacks authorship, attacks the Bible. This is this is a really terrible resource. I just want yeah. to show you this. This this is what uh, you're talking about, um, Chris. Their view, the the people that put this together and put the dictum notes in there. Yeah, and so, so I pull I pulled up a little thing just to kind of explain it a little further. So the the people who support the do documentary hypothesis are basically saying that Moses didn't uh, write all of it, which we agreed with that to a certain extent, as we just established. <laughs> you know, the last part of Deuteronomy, yes, but they're saying that a whole bunch of people got together and wrote the Pentateuch. Um, that different authors and different people compiled, compiled uh, documents and oral traditions and put it all together. So it stems from the fact that different names of God are used in the in the in the Pentateuch. So you have the J, which is the the Yahwist. And so the Yahwist would always use Jehovah for God's name. The the E would be the Elohist, Elohist, which uses Elohim for God's name. And then you have the D, which is the Deuteronomist, which they say Moses didn't write. So basically they say Moses didn't write Deuteronomy at all. Uh, somebody else wrote it. And then P would be the priestly author who wrote Leviticus. So Moses didn't write Leviticus or De Deuteronomy, according to them. And so um, they come to the, the conclusion that possibly it was Ezra who compiled all the different pieces of the Pentateuch, took all the J's, the E's, the D's, and the P's, and put them all together in the fourth century. Uh, BC, but the problem with that is it goes back to what Matt said is that the Bible itself affirms <laughs> that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, so it's an uphill climb for them. And like I said, over time, um, eventually, people at first people were all for it, and then over time, as more and more scholars looked at the feasibility of it, it just didn't mesh out. So it, it has been debunked several times over, but people still try to use it um, to try to declare that the Bible is flawed in some kind of way. Hmm. So yeah, that for the listeners, that's just like a little quick summary of the, the documentary hypothesis. I don't spend a ridiculous amount of time uh, on it or any other crazy issue for that matter. I just really want to let the text speak for itself and really establish from scripture uh, what we believe it should be. So, so since Moses, uh, we all agree that Moses was the author and the date of Genesis would have been sometime in his lifetime. Um, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't really, in my research, I couldn't really pinpoint a date necessarily. Yeah, I would but, say somewhere between 1446 or 45, uh, the date of the Exodus, and then his death, like 1406 or 1405 BC. Somewhere between that, but more close to the end of his life. Right. Okay. I can agree with that. He's pretty much in, in his lifetime for sure. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but obviously you've you've seen something. I couldn't really find anything to pinpoint. I kind of thought in my mind that it was around the time of the Exodus, but um, I couldn't find anything definitive. There's not a lot of agreement necessarily, uh, but in a general sense, it. Moses wrote it during his lifetime, of course. Um, and so as far as the structure is concerned, uh, we talk about, um, so with the LGH hermeneutic that Eric brought up at the beginning, the best way to structure Genesis is how Genesis structures itself. And the way that Genesis structures itself is through the Toledot. So... Toledot is Hebrew for this is the account of or the generations of 
or the descendants of. So every time you see that in the text, there's a transition that's taking place. And I want to come back to that. Um, but the second way is more of a man-made way of looking at it. Um, I don't personally, I don't see how they, I can see how they kind of got it from the text, but I don't think it, it is textual. And that's the primeval history, which is the first 11 chapters. And then the patriarchal history is chapters 12 through 50. Um, I think that's the Toledot structure is more of a natural way of dividing the narrative of Genesis. So you can see yeah, could the be, structure. It could be more, yeah, like more of a grammatical because you, you have these these statements like uh, you have the total doubt of creation, then you have the generations of Adam, the genealogies of Adam, and then the total doubt of Noah is the next one in chapter six, nine, and then Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You see these statements show up throughout the book as they're transitioning to you know, each, each one of these people's uh, generations or genealogies. So this has definitely been a very uh, popular way of outlining the book. If you're looking at it, like grammatically. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just easier to, to see, see the changes because another thing that you'll notice when you, if you look at it in the, the Hebraic structure of the Toledot is that they alternate, not perfectly alternate, but they alternate between a genealogy and a narrative. So you have mm -hmm. some Toledotes, some, some they give you a genealogy. And then other Toledotes just give you a narrative of a particular person's life. I also noticed that um, they don't always, the, to, the Toledote, especially in the narrative sense, is not always about the person. Like Toledote of Terah in chapter 11 isn't actually about Terah, it's about Abraham. It's a narrative about Abraham, but Terah was the, I guess, the forefather, I guess you would call it, uh, that that led up to Abraham. But the, the narrative itself is actually about Abraham. And then the final thing that I noticed was that the narratives take up a larger chunk. So when a Toledot is a narrative, it takes up a larger chunk of Genesis than when it's a genealogy. Um, so I think it's. You know, I know the, the, the Toledotes that have to do with the genealogies are reminding us of the tension between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Because not all of the genealogies are the seed of the woman. Some of them are actually the seed of the serpent. Yeah, yeah as, Esau and Edom. Right, the Ishmael and Esau. So it's it. Genesis, is, Moses, by writing it that way, is reminding us that, yes, there's still tension between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so I think that particular structure is is better when you're trying to follow the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. The other one is helpful. I'm not saying it's wrong. The other one is helpful when you're just trying to pinpoint where something falls because you got the four major events, yeah. which would be creation, fall, flood, and a tower of Babel in chapters one through 11, but then in 12 through 50, you got the four people, four major people, which would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Yeah, sure. So that structure is not, it's not bad. It, it's helpful, but it's helpful in a different way. Like if you're just trying to pinpoint a particular event or a person, then it's helpful that way. But for literary purposes and for trying to uh, establish the proper hermeneutic, I think that uh, the Toledot, uh, would be better. Yeah, you're explaining it to kids, you know, um, you know, there's four major events emphasized in chapters one through 11, and there's uh, four key, key, key people, the patriarchs emphasized in chapters 12 through 50. Creation, fall, flood, and Babel, or dispersion of the nations, those four events, and like you said, those four key patriarchs it's uh, it's a good way to explain it to kids when you're teaching them about Genesis, or someone for the first time that you're going back and making your arguments from Genesis. Mm -hmm. So it definitely has uh, has merit. I think, yeah, I think I think they both have merit in in the discussion. 
the Toledot uh, thing is just very clear grammatical observation as you as you look through, right? You know the, the whole book. Yeah, for teaching purposes, like if you know somebody was trying to explain Genesis, it'd be easier to remember the four events and the four people as opposed to trying to remember what Toledot was about. Who? So, as you said, they're both they both have merit. They're both helpful. Um, so when we talk about the place. So where was Israel at the time that this was being written? Because, I mean, they weren't present for creation. Moses wasn't present at creation. So as far as where Israel was at the time when the Pentateuch was being written, where, where would we place them? You mean the people of Israel? Right. Where do you guys want to take a stab at this? I mean, I'm I'm thinking Moab, but... It was sometime before Moses' death, so it was before they uh, before they entered the Promised Land, uh, after the Exodus, so sometime around, yeah, it could have been Moab. So uh, probably just somewhere in the wilderness, or, or, or close yeah, to. It, it, it's probably tied in with, with the giving of the law, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't like fully research it necessarily, but. Uh oh, <laughs> I didn't fully research it, but uh, uh, some of the like uh, Eugene Merrill, uh, his kingdom of priests, he kind of places them uh, in the vicinity of Moab. Yeah, um, which which makes that. which makes oh, sense. Yeah, the wilderness, true. the wilderness makes sense too, because like Matt said, somewhere between um, the Exodus and the entrance into the promised land so did mike bounce off this yeah I, I don't know if he just like accidentally dropped out or what um cool. all right so the themes what are what are some of the themes that like in your studies of genesis what are some of the themes that you've come across i know some of the obvious ones would be like sin you know the entrance of sin and the sovereignty of God, of course, over creation. Uh, but what are some some other themes that uh, you've come across in your studies of Genesis? Some some of the threads that run through it. You want to go, Matt? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's uh, there's cre there's uh, creation. So a lot of Genesis has to do with uh, with origins. Uh, origins of uh, the world, uh, origins of God's creation, origin of man. Uh, like Eric said, I, I think Genesis 3.15 is a huge theme. And the, uh, the red thread, the beginning of the red thread of the, of the, uh, the seed of the woman and the way that that's uh, preserved uh, even through the Abrahamic covenant. And the descendants of Abraham, the themes I think are tied in with the Toledotes too, where you, uh, where you have... Uh, the generations of, uh, of different people and the way that God uh, is working through history. And, you know, I mean, even in the, the history of Genesis, you notice that everything's very linear, uh, that, that there's order to history, that God has decreed history to uh, unfold a certain way. And so it's not a random evolution or random uh, chance. You know, it's, it's not like, like man uh, evolving randomly, but, but you have a very particular uh, a linear history in which uh, you have descendants according to the plan of God. I mean, God even commanded Abraham to uh, to to live in a certain place and to take uh, possession of the land and, and, and live in a certain land, so that, he, that way he could accomplish his divine purposes. And so, I mean, you, you see you see all these things beginning to unfold in Genesis, uh, even the establishment of the uh, the nation of Israel. And the way that God is going to work in them throughout history, and so th there's there's a lot of themes in Genesis, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the fall of man, which you already mentioned, and, and redemption. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. Eric, got anything? I think what's really interesting is the dispersion of the nations at the Tower of Babel, and um, I've I've brought this up a lot, and we started the Biblical Christ Research Podcast based on these themes trying to deal with this problem that's happening today with a lot of um, what they call racism. But you see, uh, yeah, yeah. 
you see the dispersion of the nations, um, you know, the, these, and then, and then different ethnicities that came from that, but, you know, we're one race. And mm -hmm. so Genesis answers that, that we're, that, uh, there's, there's multiple ethnicities in the human race, but there's one race, there's not multiple races. And so a lot of those views, those nationalistic Darwinistic views that, that attack, uh, man's dignity, this, that suggests that different ethnicities are different races is debunked by Genesis. Because it shows that we all go to one origin. We come from uh, the first man, Adam, all of us, all the different ethnicities, and that we complement one another, and we're all made in God's image, and there's one human race. And I love that theme that, that you really see. Genesis talks about where we came from, our origins, and we want to know where we came from. And I'm interested, too, as we move forward in this, to kind of deal with a lot of those uh, evil views that have attacked the... Uh, the truth and the facts of history that we see from the book of Genesis. And I've always been interested in um, what happened at the Tower of Babel, dispersion of the nations, and wanting to know which eth ethnic uh, or ethnicity I come from. You know, I want to know where I come from, and it's a good thing, and I want to know where other people come from, and the fact that we complement one another. And you really understand that, have maturity, it helps to deal with um, this issue that we're dealing with now with a lot of ethnic discrimination because we don't want to discriminate people because of their ethnicity because we're supposed to complement one another. I see, right. I see that clearly from Genesis uh, chapter 11. And then also, you know, how it ties in with Acts and the being of the church uh, with tongues and reversing the curse that happened there in Genesis 11. Mm. And also um, in preaching the gospel, Paul brings up this theme, the fact that we all go back to one, one man, one blood, one, you know, first Adam, and that the whole human race can trace back uh, to Adam. Yeah, you're and, talking about Acts, Acts 17? Yeah, Acts 17, the sermon that the Areopagus, Mars Hill. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a really cool observation there uh, that we should also use when we're preaching and dealing with this issue because obviously we can't you know, the only thing that's going the only thing that's going to get rid of ethnic discrimination is people need to be born again and then see uh, how much we comp how much different ethnicities complement one another and that jesus saves people from every tribe every nation every tongue every people group and uh and that's a good thing you know and we see that uh and so when people really get that and grasp that, then I think that a lot of this, this anger and uh, craziness is happening, especially today. I believe the gospel is the only cure to get rid of you know, ethnic discrimination. But you really got to go back to Genesis first to see what happened to understand you know, our need um, for real you know, reconciliation with one another. And we can't be reconciled to one another unless God has reconciled us to himself through what Christ accomplished. And that's another example that you see the, the unity, um, you know, and these red uh, threads that extend throughout Scripture going back to Genesis. And the answer is everything. Mm -hmm. Every question about our origins, where we came from. Yeah. It's an incredible book. Yeah, it's, it's the foundation of all true anthropology to understand yeah, exactly. who, who man is and uh, where he came from and why God created man. Mm -hmm. and, and without Genesis... Without really believing the account of creation, you, people have no idea who they are, or 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 what they are. This is true. It's very foundational. Is actually, uh, Eric, have you seen uh, the maps of um, the dispersion from the Table of Nations? When they there's some some guys out there who have drawn maps where it's like the the people of Kittim are located in Cyprus, and then you have like the Hittites are over here, and so on. So, have you seen that map? Um, I've seen a couple of them, but I mean, the I'd have to see the one you're referring to. Maybe we could put that up um, next yeah. week or something, because that would be really helpful if we as we go through, you know, just just reference uh, as we kind of work our way through chapter eleven. That'd be really cool to see up on the screen. Oh, I'll make sure we have that. 
up on the screen because I, I do have the capability of sharing screens on here. So okay, oh. cool. So we'll be able to share screens or if you or if at any time one of you guys wants me to pull something up like find an image of something kind of like we did when Eric was doing his exposition. Um, just let me know and I'll find it and pull it up. Uh, to just to help aid in in the visual aspect of of the podcast, people can yeah. see what we're talking about. All right, so I think we'll stop there because that's that's the introduction part. Yeah, it's um, great, man. Thank you. And we'll get into uh, Hebrews eleven three and Genesis chapter one and why Hebrews eleven three is important to Genesis one, and then we'll get into the the days of creation next time we meet you guys got any uh, last words <laughs> okay, first, guys i have a couple words you want to say anything i just i just think the bible is the most unique and incredible book in in the world yeah you know, going back to what we talked about we opened up with uh second timothy three sixteen. all scriptures god breathe theopanoustos greek term it's origins from God. All scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then Second Peter one, we read that too. That that, that there's uh, only one interpretation. It's monolithic. And for those reasons, because it because the Word of God comes from God, it is the most unique and most important book in all the world. And it's a privilege to talk about. I love talking about it and going back and going over Genesis like we're doing. And um, I think it, it's just a great uh, opportunity for us to fellowship together and talk about the word. And I just that's kind of what I want to say about uh, I love this. I love this book. I love God's word. And um, it has made such an impact in my life. God has used it. It's continuing to use it to sanctify me. And um, this changed my life. And uh, it's it is my life. It's all I have is Christ and his word. And it's all I'll ever need. Well, that's a good spot to end it then, because I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> I appreciate that, Eric. All right, so next next time we meet, we'll get into the, the text itself, Genesis, and we'll walk through it until we're done with it. And then we'll head to Exodus after that, and we'll just keep walking through the Bible. I just want to make sure that I want people to see how much we at the Biblical Christ Research Institute go along with what Eric said, how much we love the scriptures, how much we appreciate the scriptures and the beauty, the literary, the beauty of the literary structure, the beauty of the words, how things are structured, how things are put together, how things are interconnected. I just want people to, to see that, hear that and benefit from it. And hopefully it will encourage them to develop the same attitude that we have uh, about the scriptures. So, Duran, hopefully we'll see you next time. Again, safe travels to you, brother. And as always, I appreciate you guys taking time out, especially on the East Coast, where it's a lot later, taking a, an hour, an hour and a half out of your time to spend time fellowshipping with, with us over here on the West Coast. My pleasure. And, and, and talking through the word, talking through doctrine, talking about God, I really appreciate it because it helps me. I mean, yeah. this is this podcast is for you guys to express yourselves, but it's also for me to be learn from you guys and be fed <laughs> from my brothers as well because I learn things from you guys while I'm while I'm sitting here listening. So I do appreciate the time that you guys put into it, and I hope that the Lord keeps the door open for years to come. And we can keep doing this and keep growing. So with that being said, we'll see all of you listeners next time or you, you watchers next time. And until then, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, Go to bcri.wordpress.com and for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought 
at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.